Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By having any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research, man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job, and your listeners are super lucky to have you, and it's always my pleasure. Chris Mascaro is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Hey, good evening, folks. Happy New Year to you, and thank you for coming back and joining me as we kick off 2024 in season number 11 of Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and I hope all of you had a wonderful holiday season, whatever holiday you celebrate. I hope it was great to you, and you rang in the New Year in style. I couldn't be more excited about season number 11 because I've got four great guests that I get to kick it off with, and I get to do it with you. We're going to start it off like we always do with Tom Patrick. TP and I, we're going to get all into the merger announcement that didn't happen. We'll discuss if the players are pulling a power play now, trying to get a larger piece of the revenue pie, maybe a share of the TV revenue. We'll also get a playing lesson for how to cure the dreaded why thing that we never talk about, right? The dreaded why with our putting. We'll do all that and more when TP joins me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll be joined by 1962 national champion and a four-time winner between the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour, Kermit Zarley. Kermit played his college golf at the University of Houston and was the medalist at the 1962 national championship, and he helped the Cougars to win the team title as well, so we'll hear about that. Plus, we'll talk about his wins on both tours and what it was like trying to chase down Jack Nicklaus at the 1972 U.S. Open of Pebble Beach when the winds were just absolutely howling. Looking forward to having Kermit make his next on the tee debut. He'll do so about 25 minutes from now. Later on in the hour, we're going to get a return visit from Dr. Bob Winters. Doc was so much fun the last time he joined me, just back in October, not that long ago. We're going to get more help with our mental game. We'll hear about the five truth bombs to help create golf confidence. We'll also hear about his recent trip over to Scotland, where he played at Presswick, which is the site of the very first Open Championship. So a lot to get into with Doc when he joins me a little bit later on in the hour. And then we're going to round out things tonight with a visit from LPGA legend and a fantastic broadcaster, Jane Crafter. Jane is a legend over in Australia. She won the Ladies Australian Masters twice and the Australian Open. She won once out on the LPGA Tour at the 1990 Farmore at Inverary and once again over on the LPGA Legends Tour. She's actually a past president of the Legends Board and helped get that tour off the ground. Very excited to have Jane as part of the show. She'll join me about an hour from now. So a lot of great stuff in store for you as we kick off 2024 here on Next on the T. But as always, thank you all so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me this week. Before we get started, our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, and I have been working with a company called KickPoint. And they have done some magical things with our logos and create some polo shirts with some wonderful designs where they take our logos and turn them into designs on a polo shirt. 
They're absolutely outstanding. Kickpoint Golf is a private label custom golf apparel company making bespoke polo shirts, quarter zips, and hoodies for those selected clubs looking to take their branded game to a whole new level. If you want to check out their apparel, and again, it's going to knock your socks off, send an email to info at kickpointgolf.com. They'll get right back to you. There's no middleman. They're going to go right to the guys that do this work. You're going to check it out, and you are really going to love what they do. I'm going to start showing the uh, polo shirts that they designed for me on my Instagram, at CT Mascaro. Check them out there so you can get a sample of what they look like. These guys know where it's at. Now let's talk about golf getaways and buddies trip locations. When you're thinking about that, think about our friends over at the McLemore which is a wonderful resort located just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee, high atop Lookout Mountain. It is a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the U.S. by Golf Digest. The 18th hole is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Keep, is under construction and will open summer of 2024. The Keep is a Bill Bergen Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled up with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton will open spring of 2024. Both have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You gotta see it to believe it, folks. Stay dine and play golf above the clouds at McLemore. Go online to McLemore.com to book your stay and play package. Now let's talk about the new P790 irons from TaylorMade. From the very beginning, P790 irons have been rooted in clean aesthetics and thoughtful design. However, their true beauty is found beneath the surface. With AI-optimized weighting and speed foam air on the inside, every iron is uniquely designed to perform exactly how you need it to. As striking as they are on the outside, their true beauty lies within. Learn more about the new P790 irons from TaylorMade by checking out their website at TaylorMadeGolf.com. Okay, now back to kickoff season number 11 with me, of course, is Tom Patry. Tom, as you know by now, is the Director of Player Development at the Twin Eagles Club in Naples, Florida. He is also a 13-time Golf Magazine Top 100 teacher, a four-time PGA Teacher of the Year, three-time Golf Digest Best in the State, including in their current December 2023, January 2024 edition, and of course, our very own Director of Instruction. And I couldn't be more honored that I kick to kick off this new season with my very first guest being the Tom Pat. Happy New Year, TP. Christy boy, Christy boy, did you get a toy? Did Santa bring you a toy, Christy boy? <laughs> Santa did bring me toys. How about yeah, you, though? You yeah, were, yeah, 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 yeah. You were asking for, like, world hunger, you know, to solve world hunger and world peace and things like that. Did Santa bring that for you? Uh, look around. <laughs> no good? That's because no, you were on the naughty list. No, no, no. no, no. Don't make accusations like that. That's, you have no evidence of that. That's not right there. Did I'm Santa not... bring you anything you could actually use? Uh, yeah, he did. Yeah, and I, I don't want to really go into my private life with you, you know. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, but yes, yes, actually, he did. Good for you. Big smile, big smile. All right, so let's get into it because the deadline for the merger between the PIF and the PGA the Tour 
The one we heard and talked about all year long. That deadline is come and gone and nothing. No news. Shocker. Shocker. Yeah. It was golf's biggest story from the moment that Monaghan <laughs> and Yasser Auermeyer went on CNBC. And then last Sunday, they pushed back the deadline to be a date yet to be determined. It seems like they've made everything as crazy and as wrong as they could possibly do. You'd think they'd want to go into the New Year TP. Having all of this cleared up and put behind them, have a clean slate. This isn't hanging over the game anymore. But no, they give us nothing. Why should golf be any different than the rest of the world right now, Chris? Why should it be different? No. no. Um, did, did, did we think there wasn't going to be a pushback on this? Did we think it was going to get solved instantly? Did we think it was going to be smooth and, and, you know, just, you know, roses, you know, and petals and sweet, sweet aromas? I mean, come on. This is, this is a, uh, a commissioner who, listen, and I'm not here to, to, you know, to bash him anymore. He's been bashed already because there's a lot of people in line ahead of me, including you, by the way. Um, Indeed. But, but you know, he, could he make, could he have made any more mistakes? And at this juncture with the affection of our latest great player, John Rahm, and, you know, rumors circulating about two or three more going, um, if you were the Saudis, wouldn't you say, hey, you know, let's just extend this and you guys can get back to me whenever you'd like. We're just going to hang out over here and do our thing and wear your and wear your asses out. I mean, it's just. I mean, who's in the driver's seat here, really? It, it's certainly not. It doesn't seem to be the PGA Tour right now, does it? No, it does not. But to your point, I mean, if you are Yasser Auermeyer and you are the guys over with the PIF, I think you're exactly right. I think you just hang out and go, look, hey, we signed John Rom. Guess what? I got three or four more sitting in my back pocket. These are the things that I want. This is how I want things to be. And if, you know, the, the, the tour, Monaghan, the other guys on the board, like, ah, I don't know about that. Well, you know what? You let us know. We'll be right here. Yeah. Because if you don't, we, we got another way we can go. I mean, I think, Tom, <laughs> if you look back to last year, everyone was sort of thinking, ah, this live thing, it's not going to last. It's going to go away. They got nothing. No one's watching this thing. It's going to go away. They they don't have anything in their back pocket to do anything with because they don't have TV broadcasting rights. But I think what everybody continues to discount is got $700 billion right, in, in their back pocket. That's what they got. And if they have to throw three or $400 million around, they don't care. So what? We'll make it tomorrow when you guys go to the gas pumps. Thank you very much. I, I just I think we're we're selling them short. Because I sat on the phone with you last year at a red light in Fort Myers at seven o'clock in the morning having a discussion with you, and I was I couldn't have been any more wrong. I told you that a year from that date, which has not come yet, but it's coming up pretty soon, that Liv was gonna be gone and the thing of the past. I, I I was so wrong, it's unbelievable for that very reason. You know, we have a trillion dollars sitting there and we're just gonna sit here and wear your ass out. You know what? You kinda pissed us off. We wanted to get into the game. You kind of shunned us at first. Then you jerked us around a little bit. Then the DOJ got involved. You know what? Let us know when you want to talk. We're just going to sit over here and just keep stealing your players. Yep. We've also talked about Eamon Lynch's article in Golf Week about how players are perhaps starting to get a little ballsy, trying to start dictating things, including one of the players allegedly telling Fred Ridley over at Augusta National that they need to up their game regarding the prize money. We've heard Victor Hovland say... The PGA Tour leadership 
has not done a good job. And Lynch says, what if emboldened players want and muscle their way to reshaping the majors and demand more of the revenue from the PGA Tour, like maybe a piece of the TV money, and want part ownership of the Ryder Cup the way the DP World Tour does with some of their legacy associations? Tom, could this be the rise of the players taking control of their league? Or the fall of the players, Chris, or the fall. I mean, I think that uh, I think they're in a I think they have to realize they're at a very fragile juncture right now. And, and you know, one move that's the wrong way um, at the wrong time could really, really devastate this tour. I mean, you know, you know, you get a you get a beautiful courtesy car every week. Get wonderful food and beverage. You know, everybody kind of kisses your ass. You play on great golf courses that are in great condition. You're playing for a lot of money already, uh, and it's and it's getting a little bit bigger this year. Um, and, and then now you're barking. You're barking that you want more, and it's a bad look, man. It, it's a bad optic. I mean, I, I just think with all that's going on on the PGA Tour with 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 Liv, with the DP World Tour. You know, it's a very, very, very fragile time. I think I, I gotta keep my mouth shut right now and just play golf and let this thing kind of work its way, work, work itself out. To your point about it being a bad look, and we've talked about other things that they want. You want better restrooms <coughs> for the wives and the family members. They, they they want upgraded food. They want you know this, that, and the other thing. That this is guys playing for somewhere between eight and twenty million dollars a week out on the PGA Tour, to your point, wanting more. And I think the average player, that weekend warrior like me, looking at this, looking at what's going on, looking on the infighting, looking at the $600 million or however $100 million that John Rahm just got. I mean, things like this that we can't even possibly fathom. And then we start to look at, you know what? It cost me 80 to 100 bucks to play on the weekend, on a good weekend. It's now costing me fifty to fifty-five dollars for my my uh, my top of the line golf balls. Thirty dollars on a good day for some of the some of the other golf balls. I'm I'm paying five hundred dollars for a driver, and all this is going to go up, by the way, when we get to the point where we've got to start putting the bill for the the ball rollback and that sort of thing. So everything in golf is already expensive, and it's it's a struggle for us to be able to play it on a regular basis. Now you guys want to talk about whether you're going to get. Two million or three million or four million dollars for a win. I mean, at some point, the golf fan is going to get disenfranchised, aren't we? Are we going to take a look at it and go, you know what? I'm done with these guys. I'm going to go play my rounds of golf. I still love the game, but at what point does it start to impact your desire to watch the John Deere tournament? You know, we'll watch our majors, but do we really want? Are we really going to get involved with wanting to watch some of these signature events and things of that nature? I just, I feel like the game is coming to be a, a house of cards that is very close to falling in on us. Well, I, I think there's two sides to that, because I think, one, um, the the average weekend warrior um, sits at home on Sunday afternoon, and he's going to have a choice between watching figure skating or, um, you know, some, some young lady on the balance beam or turning on the PGA Tour. If they're a golfer, they're not going to watch figure skating. Okay? And they've got short memories, and um, yeah, I don't think the average fan. I think you and I are a little bit different, and and then a lot of our listeners are different in the sense that we're very passionately involved and love the game, and and we're pissed off about some things. But the average guy, 
you know, a lot of them don't, don't even know what Live is versus PGA Tour. You know, I have, I have students that don't know the difference between the PGA of America and the PGA Tour. And if you ask them to name the top three women players in the world, wouldn't have a clue. Um, you ask him who, who won last year's Masters, you're not going to get an answer. So that guy, he's still turning on TV and if golf's on, he's going to flip it on and watch it for a while. Uh, I think the point we're getting to now, though, is with all the things you mentioned on the other side, that we're asking for more and more and more. You know, when does corporate America, we've already seen it happen in one event, say, you know what, guys, too much money for us. We're out. We're going to put our money somewhere else. You know, we're going to do something else with our our discernible dollars as far as in a, in a marketing sense. I think they got to be very, very careful right now. Because from a TV standpoint, which, listen, that drives the bus. TV drives the bus. And if TV goes away or a bunch of sponsors go away and leave hole in the, holes in the schedule, now you got a real problem. Tom, let's switch gears a little bit. I'm going to talk to you about Victor Hovland and uh, the idea of never-ending pursuit to get better. And look, practicing, you and I have talked about practicing on this show thousands of times. You know, short game, short game, short game, get out there, practice, do all of those things so that we can play better. You can't just show up on your weekend tee time having not hit any golf balls and expect that you're going to play better golf. But where I start to get concerned with Victor Hovland is the same place where I got concerned with Tiger Woods. I know Tiger needed to change his swing because he started to have knee problems and his body started to break down. But the pursuit of perfection, at some point you start to chase ghosts. And we see that with some players in the past that were looking for changing the golf swing and then they never found it again and, and went on. So at, at what point, when you're talking to a tour player or somebody that, at an elite level and they want to continue to get better and they, because they want to change their swing, it's not because, hey, look, I, I'm, I'm struggling with my putter. My shot's gained putting is, is too poor or, or my shot gained around the green. I need to work on my chipping. When you're starting to talk about full swing changes, at what point does it start to get to be, I don't know, problematic for a player because they're chasing perfection, which is something we'll never get in the game of golf? I think it's a great question because I think that, you know, when you get to coach, I've been really fortunate to coach some really talented people at a very high level, both males and females. Um, you know, they think it's, it's a swing or a technique issue. And I got to tell you, I, I've coached some players that had less than pristine actions and, you know, were fabulous players and, and able to shoot very low scores. Um, and most of that was based on a belief system or an attitude. That they thought that they were the greatest things to slice bread. Um, if we went back, oh, we're going to go back 35 or 40 years now, and you and I walked down the range at Westchester during the Buick Classic, and we didn't know who he was. We stood behind Jim Furyk. <laughs> we thought that he would have the career he's had uh, with that golf swing. Um, certainly not. Um, Raymond Floyd had the club so laid off in his backswing, so far behind him. You know, you needed to take the Amtrak to get back to the golf ball. Um, you know, who had a greater attitude on the golf course and was more dialed in than Raymond Floyd? Um, I think that the intangible out there isn't golf swing. I don't think the intangible out there, the number one intangible is not even short game. The intangible out there that's, you know, that, that the greatest players in the world carry is a self-belief. Um, and that's why guys like Bob Rotella have made a living 
on the PGA Tour and on the LPGA Tour and in those sporting venues. Um, you know, I think you get to a point where you can hit the hit the ball in the middle of the club face as well as Victor Hovland does. Um, and he cleaned up the short game the way he did in the last year. Um, be careful what you wish for. You might get it. Sticking with Hovland, he hasn't won a major yet. He finished tied for seventh last year in the Masters, tied for second at the PGA. Is this the year he gets his first major? Well, I think I think that goes back to what I just said. I think his golf confidence has grown tremendously in the last 24 months. Um, we've seen him, you know, I think the chest, his chest gets out, puffed out a little bit better. The chin gets up a little higher. He has a different stride in his walk. I think if you read body language, and, you know, one of the things I get paid to do, although people don't realize, is read body language. And, and you know, his body language, I think, is tremendous right now. I, I think he's got a much different belief in himself that he, right now than he did 24 months ago. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if he won a major, but it goes back to the same thing, Chris. There's only four of those a year. Uh, and there's certainly more than four great players on the PGA Tour right now. So, you know, it has to be your week. Things have to happen the right way. You need to get a couple of breaks that you normally don't get on a weekly basis. So many things have to fall into place to win a major. Um, look how many times you've seen a guy like Rory come close and, and uh, you know, we can go down the list. Um so can he win a major? You know, God, God, no. Of course he can win. He's, he's a tremendous player. It has to be his week. Speaking of Rory, we've been waiting a decade for him to get major number yeah. five. Yeah. We know about him needing to win the Masters to get the career Grand Slam. But the PGA this year is back at Valhalla, where he won his last major in 2014. So it's been a decade, right, since that last time. He's going to go back to a place you talk about confidence. He's won there before. Can that give him a, a leg up, if you will, a little more confidence so he breaks that 10-year 10, 10 schneid and gets major number five? You know, Rory, we've talked about this before, Chris. Rory is an enigma to me. I I watch Rory swing a golf club and, and hit shots, and you, you wonder who in the world could ever beat him. It's so beautiful and so graceful, and it's, it's long and straight, and it's, you know, high towering irons, and he's got a great pair of hands on him, but We've seen him do some really not so great things coming down the stretch recently. And I'll go the opposite of what my Victor Hovland comment right now. You know, have, have things crept in there in, in between the two years that the belief system isn't as strong as it once was. You know, he talks a good game and you gotta say those things out loud. You wanna you wanna try to talk yourself into things, if you will, but I I I, I question sometimes if the belief system is as strong um and the desire is as strong as it once was. Um, the body language at times looks looks really awful to me. Um, so is he talented enough? Well, God knows he's talented enough. He's incredible. And, and he and he's kind of a streaky guy, too. He gets it going. So, you know, again, right week, things go the right way. Things start to click. He gets on a little bit of a roll. You know, he, he could devastate a field. But, you know, I... It, it doesn't look good to me. You just, I, unless I hope I'm wrong, but it just doesn't look good to me. Tom Golf Magazine told two of their editors and a senior writer and asked who or what won 2023. And James Colgan said, Phil Mickelson is who won 2023. And he cited Phil's second place finish in the Masters. And then the merger that Phil said would ultimately happen between Liv and the PGA Tour. Liv becoming a legitimate entity that has a future. He's almost been completely vindicated from where Phil was two years ago. Do you think Phil 
is still the bad guy, still wearing the black hat, or did he turn up the underbelly of the PGA Tour and showed its ugly side? And you know what? Maybe Phil was right all along. You know, if it's true, you'll never get me to admit it. <laughs> if it is true and you make a great case, um, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to pat him on the back. He's not my favorite, never has been. I think he's a big mouth. I think he, uh, I think he goes down some rabbit holes that are just incredible. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it's like, can you take a steady diet of Phil Mickelson and Greg Norman? Not not me. Can you take a full diet, you know, diet of Patrick Reed and Brooks Kepka? Not me. Can you take a full diet of Grayson DeChambeau? No, not me. Um, so if he was right, good for him. Get me to admit it, never happened. Let's go back to some data and shots gained. Uh, we talked a little bit about it a moment ago and improving in an area. Scotty Scheffler won twice last year, including the players. He had 17 top 10 finishes, the most on the PGA Tour since VJ had 18 back in 2005, all despite finishing the season ranked 162nd in strokes gained putting. He has since started working with Phil Kenyon on that, and he won the World, the Hero World Challenge just a few weeks ago, finished sixth in strokes gained putting that week, didn't have a single three putt. If he can just finish in the top 50, and putting this season, Tom. Should everyone else on tour be nervous? You know, listen, I, I think Scotty Scheffler in, in the same vein as a Jim Furyk are a little bit of an enigma to me. If you watch him swing a golf club, so many shots come out of the middle of the face. I mean, the guy just hits so many solid golf shots. Um, and he does that with possibly the worst footwork in golf um, since Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Um, but he, but he does, and 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 you know, listen, I do this for a living. Chris asked me to explain how he does that, and I can't give you an explanation. But he does it. He has great, great golf shots into the green, and the real the real proof of that is that he did what you just said: seventeen top tens on the PGA. I don't know if people really understand what that means. That seventeen top tens in a season on the PGA Tour. How good you have to play to do that consistently. That's an amazing statistic. Amazing. Um, and, and with Kenyon, he has seemed to turn the corner a little bit. It seems to be getting a little bit better. Um, but the fact that he did that last year, putting the way he putted, just as a tribute to how good of a ball striker he is. And please, if anybody can explain how he does that, you know, doing the cha-cha, I'd like to know. <laughs> Tom Tiger said he wants to play one tournament per month this year after he finished 18th out of 20. At the Hero World Challenge, he said he wasn't in good enough shape to be able to finish off his rounds during that tournament. But for a guy who doesn't want to play ceremonial golf, can you be competitively sharp to compete with these young guys out on the PGA Tour if you're only wanting to play one competitive tournament a month? You know, I would tell you that 99.99% of world-class players couldn't do that. But I'm tired of betting against him and getting mud in my face. Um, that cat has, if a cat has nine lives, he has 900, it seems like. And every time you count him out and you say, it can't, he can't be competitive, he can't come back, he's too hurt, he's do this, he's do that, all of a sudden he puts, he puts a W up somewhere. Now, I know it's been a long time, and I know a lot of things happened recently that in the past two years that have really, really hurt him physically. Um, but I'll tell you what, 
just like I'm not I'm not admitting to Phil being right, I'm not admitting to Tiger being wrong. Um, he you know, he's just he's he's an enigma. He's a he's a freak show. He's Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, and and Tom Brady rolled into one. He, he just it, it, I don't know if we're ever going to see this again, Chris. I mean I I know we say this and you know you know. We see great baseball players and great football players, and nobody ever do what they did again. And then somebody comes along and does it. But this, the things that this guy did in his career, um, repeatedly for a long period of time, statistically, you can, you can quote him from now till doomsday, were amazing. Here, here's the ultimate example of what I said earlier about, you know, the mind being the strongest asset. This guy has a belief system that is second to none. I guess if there was a second, a distant second, it'd have to be Nicholas. But I'm, I'm not going to bet against him. So let's let's talk about Tiger for a moment because he just turned 48 years old. Let's say the, the foot continues to be a problem, leg continues to be a problem. He struggles out on the PGA Tour. He's 48. He's got two years to going out on the Champions Tour where he can take a cart. Tiger goes out on the Champions Tour. All of a sudden, as has happened throughout his career. All eyes go to him. So now if he plays regularly or even once a month out on the Champions Tour, and now the ratings are sky high on the Champions Tour and dwarfing what's happening happening out on the PGA Tour, how does the PGA Tour, do you think, how do they think they react to that? All of a sudden, the, the oh-by-the-way tour that they're just sort of keeping propped up and really not paying a heck of a lot of attention to is now where all the ratings Go because that's where Tiger is. Well, I think, think they deal with that. I think I think if you if you're really smart, and there's people way smarter than me, Chris, we know that for sure. Um, when your next TV deal comes up, you kind of leverage that and say, "Yeah, we'll, we'll do a package with you, but we're going to give you Tiger on the Champions Tour, you know, eight or ten or twelve times a year. But if we do that, you got to take this, this, and this on the PGA Tour. Um, that, you know, there are people that obviously work those deals out and negotiate those terms." I think you can still use it to your advantage um, by packaging TV rights to you know different things together, and then it goes back to what you're saying: players wanting a piece of the pie. What if he says, "Yeah, I'm going to go out there and play for you guys and help you get this TV deal done," but if you do that, I need a little cut in the action. <laughs> well, how would that, how would that be? Right? I, could you not see that happening? I Mark Steinberg is a very smart dude. Um, if you don't think they haven't thought about that already, I think you're pretty naive. Yeah, no doubt. Tom, I want to get a couple of playing lessons from you. Oh, no, no, wait a second. Wait a second. Do you have a Venmo? You have a Venmo, (laughs) Indeed. Um, It's January. It's cold in the majority of the country, every place north of Florida. The thing that we can all be practicing if we can't get out on the golf course because it's snowing or it's just too darn cold is our putting because we can do that indoors. We can do it just about anywhere. If we are somebody who has... The dreaded Y word in our putting stroke. What is what is something we can do while we're practicing our putting indoors to fix that by the time spring comes around? So let's talk here. That that Y word, just like the S word in the full swing, is is first and foremost a loss of confidence. Okay, so one of the things I do with people, one of the things I do with people who have the Y word is we start very, very, very close to the hole where 
you know, you can basically blow it in the hole, you know, just by just a little breath of air. You've got to see successes. You've seen a lot of failures. You've got a tremor. It's it's not very pretty. It's affecting you. You've got to see positive things happen. So I, I've spent hours with a person, you know, a foot from the hole, just it's just you know, kind of raking them in, raking them in, raking them in. Um, eyes closed drills, one-handed drills, alternate putting grips, alternate putting styles, uh, arm lock. I mean, there's so many different things you can do. And when you get to that point, if it's really that bad, you've got to explore every single option. You've got you can't you can't leave any stone unturned. You certainly can't go into the next season with that still existing. So there's a lot of things you can do. The best thing you can probably do is wherever you are in the country, jet blue to Fort Myers, rent a car, <laughs> 75 South exit 111, go about five and a half, six miles to the east. That's on the left-hand side. <laughs> yeah, indeed. That is the best thing we can do. Yeah. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for you to do that, Mascaro. You are? Really? Jesus Christ, how many times do I all right, all right, all right. All right, before I let you go, remind no, our no, listeners, how can they stay up to date with you? What about him? We're going to win the Super Bowl now. Oh. Mason Rudolph. You, you kidding me? Going, don't let us Don't let us get in the playoffs. Because if we're in, now. we're going all the way. You're going, you're going the whole way now, right? That's exactly right. Mason right. Rudolph is the guy. Rudolph saved Christmas, and he saved the Steelers. So if we get in. You don't want any part of us. Exactly. You're just going to just trample people, aren't you? Exactly. Hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Listen, when you get off, just, just take a cold shower. Will you please? <laughs> Will you, you okay? <laughs> now, let me before I do before we close here. Who you got tonight? I, I know you got somebody back behind me who I know. I, I think two people. Who Who you got tonight? So, following you is is the great Kermit Zarley, and wow. then Doctor Bob Winters after that, and then Jane Crafter will close us out. So that's what it is. Bob Winters, long long time friend. Please say hi. Wonderful okay. guy, talented guy, and Jane Crafter might have one of the most beautiful putting strokes that I've ever seen in my life. Is that right? Oh my goodness! So let me tell you something. Take take a seat, Faxon. Take a seat, Ben. Pretty damn good. Um, please give them both my best, and please tell Jane I said what I said because I, I, when I coached on the ladies' tour, she was still playing. And um, I used to, she doesn't know this, but I would sit on the side of the green sometimes just watching it putts. It's a beautiful thing. All right. I look forward to talking all about that with her. So she'll join me here uh, in just a little bit. Doesn't matter where they can find me. What they should find is every Tuesday night, they should find Chris Mascaro and next on the tee, who does the greatest golf podcast on the planet, period. I'm going to leave it on that note. I'm going to go Betty by because I get for five tomorrow. <laughs> And ruins several backswings by noontime. God knows. I feel sorry for those folks. Absolutely. That's devastating. It'll be devastating. Tom, take care, my friend. All the best to you and the missus. I look forward to catching up with you again in a couple of weeks. You're the best, Chris. I love you, pal. Right back at you, TP. Bye, man. See you, man. That is the great Tom Patry. And as I've said many, many times, they just don't come better than that guy as an instructor, as a guest, and certainly as a friend. Can't wait to catch up with him again in a couple of weeks. You can find him on Instagram at Tom Patry Golf on his website at website tompatry.com. And be sure to go out and uh, subscribe to his YouTube channel so you can get those 300 plus free video lessons.
Coming up next is going to be a guy who won the 1962 National Championship, helped his team win that same National Championship. He won four times between the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour and is now a wonderful author, and that is Kermit Zarley. Before I get to Kermit, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX Full Face Wedges from Cleveland Golf. Another new product that has stood out to me is On Point Golf. Game-changing, three-dimensional ball markers that science shows will help us see the line better when we're putting and therefore make more putts and lower our scores. See for yourself why Jim Furyk and I are big fans by going online to onpointgolf.us. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. Okay, now making his next on the tee debut with me is Kermit Zarley. Let me give you some background on Kermit. He's from Seattle, Washington. Prior to college, he won the Washington State and Northwestern amateur titles. He went on to play his college golf at the University of Houston, where he was the medalist at the 1962 National Championship, and he led the Cougars to winning the team title as well. He was a first-team All-American in 1963. His career stroke average of 71.97 from 1961 to 1963 still ranks seventh all-time in Cougars history and he was inducted into their Hall of Honor in 2010. He turned pro in 1963 and made his tour debut in 64. He won three times on the PGA Tour, including the 1970 Canadian Open, and once out on the Champions Tour. He finished in the top 10 three times in majors, including a sixth-place finish at the 1972 U.S. Open. Over the course of his playing career, along with those four wins, he had 49 top fives and 116 top tens, and I couldn't be more honored I get to spend time with him this week here on Next on the Tee. Happy New Year, Kermit. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, Chris. Happy New Year to you. Kermit, I want to start out our time tonight by going all the way back to when you were a kid. I read that your father got you started in the game, and he owned a restaurant right across from the public golf course. Is that how it all got started for you? Kermit, so I got to ask you, how does a kid from Seattle, Washington, end up playing his college golf at the University of Houston? Yeah, that's a good question, Chris. Uh, the reason for that is that the University of Houston uh, men's golf team started winning the NC2A championship starting in 1955 or 6. They won four years in a row, so they had developed quite a reputation in college golf. And so I went to school there in 1959. So to your point, 
Right. The University of Houston from 56 to 1970 won the national championship 12 times. So getting recruited to go play there meant that you were the best of the best to get an opportunity to play and be a part of that team. What was it like for you to get recruited to go play there? Yeah, that's another good question, too. I had achieved uh, some success in junior golf, and I won the National Hearst Junior Championship that was sponsored by the Hearst newspapers. And that's what really got me some recognition. And the golf coach at the University of Houston phoned me because of that. And I eventually uh, decided to go to school there. When you guys won the national championship in 1962, Rocky Thompson was one of your teammates. He had a wonderful career on the PGA Tour and out on the Champions Tour as well. Your teammates were also Wright Garrett, Homero Blancas, Fred Marty, Mark Hopkins, and Babe Hiskey. You guys won six tournaments that season. You went up to Duke Golf Club and won the national championship there. That was a heck of a dominant team. With all of those national championships, Houston, Houston has had a ton of great players over the years, including another great friend of this show, John Mahaffey, who won the national championship when he was there. But you know, Houston has produced Phil Rogers and Bruce Litsky, Fred Couples, Keith Fergus, Billy Ray Brown, Marty Fleckman, so many great players along with yourself. When you went back for alumni events, what was it like being around all of those guys? Yeah, it was fun to see them. Uh, we did have an alumni event. I think that was in 2005. And some of the guys, I hadn't seen them for a long time. You got your first win on tour at the 1968 Kaiser International Open. You did so by a stroke over another former Houston Cougar, Dave Marr. You shoot 65 in the final round to win it. What do you remember about winning that golf tournament? Well, I shot 65 the last round, so I came from behind. Uh, that was at Silverado uh, Resort and Golf Club in Napa, California. And yes, I uh, won by one stroke over Dave Moore. Kermit, I've talked to several of your peers about the Canadian Open. And before the Players' Championship rose to prominence, I always felt like the Canadian Open was the fifth major. You won at 1970 by shooting a final round 67 to beat Gibby Gilbert by three strokes. Did it feel like a major when you won it? Well, it did feel like uh, one of the best tournaments on the tour. Uh, and I kind of looked at it like you're saying. Uh, a fifth major, maybe it's too much to say about it, but it's a national championship. Uh, and so it was a uh, mainstay on the PGA Tour's uh, schedule in the summertime. And so I was uh, really happy to win that tournament. In 72, you get the band back together, sort of, with uh, Babe Hiskey. You guys teamed to win the National Team Play Championship. What was it like to get to win that tournament with him? Yeah, that tournament had been dominated by, uh, that was a team championship tournament, the only one of the year. And it had been dominated by Jack Nicholas, the team of Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer, they won the first five, uh, the first five tournaments in that team championship. And then, uh, they were scheduled to play that year, but Jack hit his thumb with a hammer, knocked him out. 
That's the reason we won. <laughs> Speaking of Jack in 72, you're right in the thick of things at the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. You're a stroke back of him going into the final rounds, and then the winds kick up. What was it like trying to play Pebble Beach, trying to chase Jack down with the winds howling the whole day? It was, uh, and it was, uh, it was a bright, sunny day. Jack said the grass on the greens was dying uh, because it was so dry and windy. I actually took the lead, uh, and on the seventh hole, the little par three downhill, I uh, three-putted and uh, had a one-shot lead on Jack. Then I three-putted the next hole. And, uh, made a, uh, eight over on the par five, the 14th hole. And so I was toast after that. Shot 79, finished sixth. Fast forward several years and you beat Isao Aoki to win the 1994 Trans America tournament out on the Champions Tour. You shoot 66 in that final round, but you needed a birdie on the final hole to get into a playoff with him. And then you go out and birdie the first playoff hole to win. Talk about what that was like for you. Yes, that's right. Uh, that hole is kind of a, a tight, uh, drive. Par five, 18th hole was a, our, uh, first, uh, sudden death playoff hole. And I hit a really good drive. Aoki, uh, kind of duck hooked his drive over in the trees. And so he wound up with a long wedge shot to the green for his third shot. And I hit my uh, fairway wood onto the green, had about a 30-foot eagle putt, and easily two-putted and won. Herman, I heard that Bob Hope once interviewed you and gave you some ribbing about your name, saying with a name like that, it sounds as if he's the pro from the moon. And then the nickname Moon Man stuck. What was it like having Bob Hope give you a nickname? It did. That was my first full year on the tour in 1965. In fact, I was playing with Jack Nicholas in the last round there. That was the Bob Hope Desert Classic in Palm Springs. And Bob Hope was doing television commentating in the tower behind the 18th green. So because of Jack, he came down out of the tower to the back of the green. And when we finished the round, we're walking over there and Jack, and Bob motions us to come over. And so he starts talking to Jack, and then he says that, who is this guy you played with today? Kermit Zarley. Sounds like the pro from the moon. That really stuck with me. The media picked up on it, and I became the, the moon pro. <laughs> <laughs> Kermit, you've published 10 books on theology and history that we can go out on Amazon to find and buy. Talk about what you're doing now. Yes, I just published my 10th book. Uh, yeah, I'm a Christian, and uh, in fact, I uh, co-founded and led the PJ Tour Bible Study. Uh, we did Babe Hiskin. I did in 1965, and that uh, is going strong today out there on the tour. You got Scotty Scheffler. Uh, he's a prominent member of the group. Uh, a lot of great players uh, have been through that and won major championships. Uh, so I'm, uh, really feel privileged and thankful to be a part of that whole thing. Uh, after, uh, I eventually took up a hobby of trying to write a book 
on biblical prophecy because I'd been really interested in that subject ever since college. And so I've specialized in it. And of my 10 books, five of them are on biblical prophecy. So talk about what the books, you, you talk about what they're about. Talk about some of the titles and, and uh, what our folks can go out there and pick up and how they can do that on Amazon. Yeah, the first book was entitled The Gospel. The second book was The Gospels Interwoven. I joined all the four Gospels together in one reading uh, in the New International Version, and Billy Graham endorsed it. He had become a friend of mine. Uh, then my third book was published. Those two were in 1987. In 1990, I published Palestine is Coming, the Revival of Ancient Philistia. That book was a book before its time. Now it's much more relevant than it was then uh, because of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, I, I interpret certain prophecies in the Old Testament to indicate there's going to be a Palestinian state. It's going to be in the coastal plain. It's going to be uh, similarly located to where the uh, ancient Philistines were, uh, the arch rival of ancient Israel. And so uh, I believe that Israel will eventually uh, annex the West Bank and Palestinians will uh, will get their own state there in the coastal plain. That's what I think is going to happen. So it'll be a very expanded Gaza Strip. Kermit, how can our listeners stay up to date with all the things that you're doing? Get copies of your books and then follow you either online or over social media. Yeah, well, you can get my books at, at Amazon.com. Uh, just uh, enter uh, Kermit Zarley book. We'll do it uh, after you get to Amazon.com. You can also go to my website. Uh, that's KermitZarley.com. You can learn a lot more about me there. Got some stuff about my uh, history on the PJ Tour pictures. And then there's a lot of information about my book there, too. Well, Kermit, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of the show. You're a real treat, my friend. I hope we get this privilege again sometime soon. Hey, Chris, you're a good interviewer, and I'm happy to do it. Call well, me anytime. I appreciate that very much. Kermit, happy new year to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon. All right, Chris. Happy New Year. See you, Kermit. That is the great Kermit Zarley, folks, and a tremendous junior player, as you heard. Had an unbelievably great career in uh, in college at the University of Houston. Won a national championship. Helped the team win a national championship. Then he goes on and wins four times between the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour. Defeated some of the greatest players in the history of the game. And when he wasn't beating them, he was right there next to him. Again, you you don't have the kind of career that he did and the number of top five and top 10 finishes without being a tremendous player. 116 top 10s, folks, between the two tours, 49 top fives between them. And then to be inducted into the, the Hall of Honor there at the University of Houston, a tremendous accomplishment and a wonderful guy. Boy, I just enjoyed every minute of getting to talk to him. Hopefully we get that privilege again very, very soon. Coming up next, we're going to get a return visit from Dr. Bob Winters. Doc was so much fun when he joined me back in October. Couldn't wait to get him back on the show. Honored that he's going to be here again tonight. Before I get to Doc, I want to remind you about our friends over at Two Under. 
Two Under Men's Performance Briefs are the unofficial underwear of the PGA, Ryder Cup, and President's Cup teams and are sold in over 3,000 golf pro shops and golf specialty retailers nationwide. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, they are David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXTONT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R dot com. 2under, performance in your pants. Relax. Easy now. Find your happy place. It's all in the hips. Just tap it in. Yes! Find the latest clubs and apparel at Golf's Happy Place, the PGA Tour Superstore. Now back with me is Dr. Bob Winters. I had so much fun with Dr. Bob back in October when he joined me for the first time that I wanted to get him back on the show as soon as possible. Let me remind you about his background. He's a sports psychologist, author, and professional educator. He has his own performance enhancement company in Orlando, Florida. He is also the resident sports psychologist at the Ledbetter Golf Academy headquarters at Reunion Resort there in Orlando. Dr. Bob completed his PhD at the University of Virginia. He was a member of the athletic coaching staff for eight years. He earned his undergraduate degree at Ball State, played on the golf team there, and was named team captain for the 1975-76 season. He has coached and counseled several great players on the PGA, LPGA, and Live Tours, including Brooks Kepka, Tony Finau, Lee Westwood, Justin Rose, Kelly Whaley, daughter of our good friend Susie, and Michelle Wee. And I couldn't be more excited. I get to have him back with me this week here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Dr. Bob, Happy New Year. Thanks for coming back on the show. Happy New Year, Chris. It's great to be with you. So, Dr. Bob, the last time we touched on how to create confidence, and you've done an amazing presentation on this subject called Five Truth Bombs to Help You Create Golf Confidence. Take us through those five truth bombs. Well, you know, the the first truth bomb is really something that everyone needs to kind of listen to, and that is no one, no one really cares, you know, what you do what you do on the golf course, what you shoot, you know, more than you should care about what you shoot. I think what happens with this is that we worry so much what other people are thinking about us that we sort of give away our power. We give away our competence, our composure, our confidence, because we're so worried about, you know, what other people are thinking about us. And that comes from what we call social evaluation anxiety. So the first thing I'm always trying to help, you know, my players understand is that it's not about you versus these other players at all. In fact, you know, the competition isn't the other players. The competition is the golf course. It's you playing your very best golf against this unbelievable thing that we call the golf course. And the golf course has a lot of allies. It's got the superintendent. However, they want to set up the golf course that day. It's got the environment. And every second of every day, the golf course and the game is constantly changing. So you have to be adaptable. You've got to be flexible, mentally flexible, physically flexible. And you've got to be able to understand it's about you, your ball, and the target. And it's not about anybody else. That's the first truth bomb. 
you know, Chris, you know, that we really always talk about, you know, and and the second truth bomb, and this is the ultimate paradox in golf, is that if you want to shoot low scores, you've got to be able to give up the notion of trying to shoot low scores, of focusing on score, of focusing on result. What you have to be able to do is understand that by letting go of this overall score and really playing in the moment and staying one shot focused, that allows you to be present minded, to create a flow state, to flow with confidence and to play some of your very best golf. And by doing that one after one until Chris is done all day long, the results and the good scores inevitably come to you. So those are a couple of, you know, some of these truth bombs that we talk about. So Dr. Bob, let's take that a step further. You talk about being one shot focused. Uh And I think that's where so many of us weekend warriors, we go wrong because if we hit a bad shot, now all of a sudden we compound it by hitting multiple bad shots because we haven't let go of the last bad shot or we become score focused. Like you said, we may be thinking ahead and getting ahead of ourselves. How many times have so many of us thought, wow, I'm playing a really good round here. You know what? If I can just par the 17th (laughs) and 18th hole, I'll, I'll break 90. I'll break 80. I'll shoot 75, whatever it is. And then we start to get ahead of ourselves. And the next thing you know, we finished double, double, and we've shot 84, which is what we always shoot. Talk about not letting that happen. How can we stay in the moment? Well, the biggest thing about being in the moment is that you have to ask yourself when you go to the first tee, what is it that I really want to achieve today? What is it that I really want to do? Because if you're actually saying, I need to shoot a score, you're much like a cat trying to catch its tail. You're going to go around and around and around. And what I've always told people is that the happiest cats that I've ever seen are those are the ones that are sort of walking down the alley, just prancing along, and their tail follows them wherever they go. So instead of actually trying to say, hey, I need to shoot a score and set up a scoring expectation right at the very first tee saying, I need to shoot my personal best today, or I need to break 80 or 90 or whatever your personal best is. What you should expect is this of yourself. I'm throwing away all the expectations of score, results, and outcomes. And the only expectation that really works in golf is that you should expect to step into each shot prepared to give a fully focused endeavor on that one shot to really say, this is all I can do. And one for most people, you know, that don't know this, one, one shot, one shot at a time. One is the most critical number in golf because it's the only shot you can do anything with. And so when you are fully focused into executing your best at this one particular moment, you are fully invested. You are mindful of the moment. And what that means, your mind is filled with what you need to be doing at this moment. And if you can do that shot, after shot, after shot, they sort of actually accumulate. And at the end of the day, you're going, wow, I'm really playing well. Now, when someone comes up to you and says, Chris, wow, you're really playing well today. Keep it going. What they've done is sort of bring you out of that little one-shot bubble, and they've made you aware of your self-awareness. 
And what you need to you know, realize right then is that what you've been doing all day is confirmation that the one-shot mindset is working. Now, this is a lot easier to talk about than to do, but this is the whole basis of really what I do with all players at every level, whether you're a junior, a college player, developmental tour, or even one of the best you know, in the world that I work with. The whole point is, at the end of the day, at every tournament that you watch, you know, they actually do, you know, the winning interviews. The winners will always say the same thing and they are the golden cliches. They will say, I played my game. I stayed, you know, in my own little world. You know, I didn't look at the leaderboard. I didn't get ahead of myself and I accepted, you know, what I could accept and I kept moving on and I stayed patient. And everybody goes, well, yeah, that one shot at a time. Yeah. One after one. But these are the golden keys. And once you understand what these cliches mean, now you're really cooking with gas. Because I would say that 99% of all golfers are playing the wrong game. And, and what I mean by that, Chris, is that, you know, the first thing that people ask you when you come in off the golf course, it isn't, hey, Chris Mascaro, you know, hey, did you enjoy yourself today? Did you stay emotionally invested in every shot today? They don't ask you that. What's the first thing they asked you, Chris? Yeah, what'd you, what'd you shoot today? <laughs> what'd you shoot? See, that's the bottom line. So everybody, we become so score-focused, result- and outcome-focused that we forget the, the soul, the heartbeat of playing great golf is being involved in the shot that you're focusing on right now. And as the great Ben Hogan said, the most important shot is your one that you're facing. It's your next shot. And so, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. All great players from the great Willie Park Sr. to old Tom Morris Sr. to the Ben Hogan's, to Tiger Woods, to the Mickey Wrights, to Annika Sorenstams, they've all known the value of the power of one, one shot at a time. Along these same lines, you've talked about the number one mistake golfers make is they don't believe in their talent and their ability to hit some shots. Plus, how doubt is what stops our progress. Talk about that. Yeah, you know, doubt is the single greatest performance interference, you know, that we have. And you have to ask yourself, you know, how well or how good would I be if I didn't have any doubt? Because our own self-doubt is the thing that holds us back. And the funny thing about golf, Chris, and you've played it for a long time, and I've been around the game for so many decades, is that it's funny that what you take in when you aim and align to the ball, your mindset that you take in, the ball reflects, you know, that attitude and that mindset. There is no BS in this game. You cannot, you cannot, you know, play poker with the golf ball because the golf ball will only reflect what you bring into it when you step in to aim, address, and hit it. So that's the whole point, doubt. And if you think about confidence, Confidence and doubt are at opposite ends of the spectrum with one another. On one side, you've got trust and confidence on this scale. And this scale is tipped heavy. When you're playing great, you're playing with a lot of trust. You're playing with a lot of confidence. You know, and there's very little, if no doubt at all. There's no uncertainty. There's no anxiousness. And that's why people love to feel confident because feeling confident means I'm not scared. I'm not afraid. Let's go. You almost feel bulletproof. So people love that feeling of confidence because they do not feel fear. They're fearless. 
But when you have a little bit of hesitation, a little bit of doubt, a little bit of worry, it leads to tightness, it leads to tension. And next thing you know, that scale tips. What was once pillow feathers with trust and confidence becomes bricks that you know weigh you down and you're totally into the woods. So what we're trying to do is help you understand that Nike became this multi-billion dollar company with a logo that was a swoosh and a slogan that said three words, just do it. So when we talk about getting into the do, if you look at the word doubt, D-O-U-B-T, I always like to put a, a slice between the O and the U. When we get into the do, this is what I want to do when I step into the shot. UBT means I can do unbelievably big things. And we can do unbelievably big things when we get our mind focused into believing in our talent, giving ourselves permission just to play the way we want to play. And I got to tell you, when you start doing that, Chris, that's when the joy, that's when the fun really you know, gets back into golf. And I always remind people that fun is the first three letters of the word fundamental. It's fun, duh, but it's mental. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Bob, and back in September, you went over to Scotland and visited Presswick, the site of the first Open Championship all the way back in 1860. What was it like being on those sacred grounds? Oh, man, I got to tell you, um, it was my first time across the pond, believe it or not. And everybody, you know, I talk with goes, Gosh, Doc, I can't believe that. You know, you've played so much golf and have such a strong golf background. But we went over to Scotland and we actually played a lot of the Western courses. We played Dundonald Links. We played Western Gales. And our third day, we were at Prestwick, you know, the home of the Open Championship. And it started back on October 17th, 1860. And I sent you a picture of myself being right there on the teeing ground where Old Tom Morris Sr., Willie Park Sr., and six others played the first Open Championship back in 1860. And I got to tell you, it was a very, you know, kind of a very touching, emotional moment. I'm sitting here going, that's a long time ago, and here I am. But if you take a look at that plaque on that picture, Chris, it says this first hole was 578 yards. Now, Prestwick at that time was a 12-hole links golf course, and I think they played three days, and Willie Park Sr. won that you know inaugural event. Old Tom Morris Sr. won it the next year, and they went back and forth several times before uh, young Tom Morris uh, you know, started winning it three or four years in a row, and they would actually win the belt. But to be there and to be on that sort of sacred ground and everyone talks about St. Andrews, but, you know, we picked Prestwick because I wanted to be at Prestwick because that's really where the first Open Championship was. And I got to tell you, uh, like the Scots say, if it's a nay wind, it's a nay golf. And I got to <laughs> tell you, when we were at Western Gales, we had 45 oh. to 50 mile per hour constant winds. And people say, well, what was that like? Well, I say, well, I had 126 yards to cover this one little gully. And I took just a full metal jacket three wood that usually for me, I can hit 235, 240. And I actually crossed that little gully, that little creek by about 10 feet. 
that's how that's how strong wow. it was. And for people who know me, know me as Dr. Bob Winters, they also know me as Dr. Hare. Uh, my hair was totally straight back that day. It was not a very good hair day for Dr. Hare, Chris. And I got to <laughs> tell you, but it was fun. And uh, we went to, uh, after Prestwick, we went to Trump to play the Ailsa Golf Course and King Robert the Bruce. But it was really one of the, uh, it was my bucket list trip. We did it, you know, with family and our best friends growing up. We had eight of us. It was just, you know, a, a fantastic time. But to spend it with with family, to play the game that you love on, you know, really the the birthplace of golf. And, and I got to tell you, playing Trump, the Ailsa, where you had, you know, the huge Ailsa rock out there, uh, you know, I think in the Firth of Fourth in the Irish Sea. And, you know, we always talk about Pebble Beach, but some of those holes there at Trump Ailsa course, uh, I've never seen anything more beautiful or more rugged in my whole life. And uh, it's Scottish golf. For those people who haven't gone to play in Scotland or Ireland, uh, it's just, you know, something you have to put on your to-do list. You know, I strongly recommend it. And uh, I got to tell you, when I got back, I was just beat up. I mean, I was beat up by the travel, beat up by the wind and the golf course. But I really want to tell you this one story, Chris. It's, you know, because you have such a great show to tell personal stories. And I always love to tell these personal stories. The first day we were playing Dundonald Links, and that's where they have, you know, the women's uh, British Open over there. And on this day, I was playing very well, and we had a four caddy, and his name was Gary, but, you know, in Scotland, they're always Gary. And I almost made two holes at once. I missed one by about six inches and another on about a 220-yard hole by about a foot. And wow. so I'm, play I'm playing really well. I had a great day, and I'm not trying to brag for Dr. Bob Winters, but I was just it was just a, a wonderful day. And you think sometimes, you know, the heavens are going to open up. You're going to have a great day. So my best friend in the world, uh, you know, so was a fighter pilot and he was a commander for American Airlines. His name is Jay Strouts, one of the best athletes, you know, that, you know, I've known my whole life. Great, great golfer as well. He's in the cart with our poor caddy named Gary. And Gary comes back and he says to Jay, he goes, Jay, he goes, this Dr. Bob, you know, is a pretty good player. And Jay goes, yeah, he's played, you know, college golf, professional golf. He's been around golf all his life and tried, you know, he goes, well, he should probably be trying to make that champions tour, don't you think? And Jay goes, well, he did. He actually went to it, you know, several years ago and um, he missed it by a few shots. But, uh, you know, he's he, he could play if he really wanted to devote, you know, his whole time to it. And so Gary looked at Jay and he goes, my God, he goes, how old is he? And Jay goes, well, how old do you think, you know, Dr. Bob is? He goes, I don't know, 51, 52. He goes, looks, you know, pretty, pretty fit. And Jay goes, he just turned 70. And I'll, I'll tell my age. I just, you know, I just turned 70 right before we went on this trip. And he goes, you're kidding me. And he comes up to me, Chris, and he looks at me. He goes, Dr. Bob, are you 70? And I go, I am 70. He goes, oh, my God, man. You know, all of these years, you must have been a moisturizing. <laughs> I know. I'm serious. I, I know it's serious because I had to go home. I had to call my wife on the phone. I said, Hey, the damn best thing happened to me over here in Scotland. You know, somebody says I looked really, really young and was playing really well. He goes, Yeah, so I've, I've been a moisturizing. So, I, but, but the way he said it, it, just, it was just so 
friendly and the Scottish people were just fantastic and and the food was awesome. And I will say this, and anyone that's ever been over there, I had a dessert at uh, Western Gales and you know, the person came out, she goes, I made it myself. It was this sticky toffee pudding. Have you ever had it, Chris? I have not. Oh my, the sticky toffee pudding was to die for. And it was just sort of a, almost like a, like a Twinkie, but it was a thicker, deep, you know, it had sauce, had a lot of toffee, had a lot of caramel. And I tell you what, that was really worth the trip going over to Scotland. I'd never had sticky toffee pudding before, but anyone who's ever been there to Scotland will agree with me. And I remember I ordered it first around my table and as, and I, and everybody saw my eyes light up and I go, wow, this, I don't care how bad today was on the golf course. This was worth, you know, the whole trip right here just to have this great dessert. So, you know, the, the trip over to Scotland, Chris, it, it was great. It was awesome. You know, a lot of fun, but it's just really what this game is all about. It's about getting friends together in the name of fun and going out there and challenging and, and testing your own skills and, and seeing how well you can play. And that's why, you know, I've loved this game. And, and then every day that we go out, it's different. And it's a love affair that never dies. Indeed. Dr. Bob, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can we stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and get a copy of your books and follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media? Fantastic. They can follow me at, you know, Instagram at Dr. Bob Winters. You know, also at uh, Facebook at Dr. Robert Winters. And you can find me uh, on the web, internet, at theconfidencedoctor.com. And and like, you know, you and I have always said, Chris, you know, I work, you know, with all sorts of people. And the people that I love to work with are the people that are motivated, that are ready to learn. And I'm always, you know, ready to take on, you know, new students and help them grow in confidence and go go after their dreams and create a living reality. So I, I appreciate, you know, you always having me on. And anytime you need somebody, Chris, I will always jump on here because you do a fantastic job. You do great background research. And I just love talking with you. Well, I appreciate that very much. Dr. Bob, you're fantastic, my friend. And I always enjoy the time that I get to have with you. I'm already looking forward to time number three. And I hope that's very soon from now. Well, all you have to do is just give me a ringing ding and you know how to, t- you knew how to get in touch with me. I appreciate that very much, Doc. Take care. Happy New Year. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. All right. Thanks, Chris. Have a great evening. You too, Doc. That is the great Dr. Bob Winters again at Dr. Bob Winter and theconfidencedoctor.com online. And just what a wonderful individual he is. It's been uh, a a real joy getting to know him over the last several months. Uh, First time he was on the show, like I said, I enjoyed it so much. Couldn't wait to get him back on. And now that he's been on twice, I'm already looking forward to number three. So he's a fantastic individual. He's got great stories and he's out there doing great things, helping people have more fun, as he talked about with fundamentals, fun playing the game. And you can't get any better than that. So be sure to give him a follow again at Dr. Bob Winters and the confidence doctor.com online. We'll get him back on the show again soon. I promise. Coming up next is going to be Jane Crafter. It's going to be a huge thrill to get to spend some time with a lady who was not only a legend on the golf course, but also in the broadcast booth. Earlier in the show, you heard TP talk about how great she was as a player and a putter. Before I get to Jane, though, let's talk about our friends over at Squares Golf. And folks, do you sway and you're off balance in your golf swing? 
You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried Squares? Try the new Speed Bolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z dot com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. Okay, now making her next on the tee debut with me is Jane Crafter. Let me give you some background on Jane. She is from Perth, Australia, graduated with her bachelor's degree in pharmaceutical studies at the South Australian Institute of Technology. Started playing golf at the age of six and had a stellar amateur career. She won the 1978 New Zealand Amateur and the 1980 Belgian Amateur. She was runner-up at the 77 Australian Amateur and the 1980 Canadian Amateur. She played out on the Australian Tour, the LPGA Tour, and now the Legends of the LPGA Tour. She won the Alpine Australian Ladies Masters twice and the Australian Open. On the LPGA Tour, she won the 1990 Far More at Inverary by a stroke over Nancy Lopez. She teamed with Steve Jones to win the 1987 J.C. Penny Classic. She later teamed with Betsy King to win the Fry's Desert Classic out on the Legends Tour. She's been a wonderful broadcaster now for over two decades, working with NBC, ESPN, the Golf Channel, and the PGA Tour. She's a past president of the Legends of the LPGA Board and helped get that tour started. In 2011, she was inducted into the South Australian Sports Hall of Fame and the South Australian Golf Industry Hall of Fame, and I couldn't be more honored that I get to have her with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Jane, Happy New Year, and thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Happy New Year to you too, mate. Right off the bat, Chris, I I joined the meeting and I heard Dr. Bob talk about my favorite dessert in the whole world as well. Is that right? Coffee pudding. Oh, my God. I absolutely love that dessert. And the best one I've ever had uh, was at uh, Royal Lytham and St. Anne at the hotel. I can't remember the name of the hotel. But after we had finished doing our broadcast, we all sat around, had an ale or two, and then uh, also finished it with sticky toffee pudding. So for all those heading over to Scotland or even Australia, we, we do a pretty good sticky toffee pudding as well. Highly recommended. There you go. That's awesome. (laughs) Jane, I want to start our time tonight by going back to the early days for you. I know your father, Brian, played professionally, dominated the Australian professional events back in the 1950s and 60s. Your brother, Neil, was a top amateur player as well. Talk about what it was like growing up in a golf family. You know, it was was fantastic, really, because uh, both dad and his brother, Murray, who was about 18 months older, were really fixtures and ex- both excellent players on uh, the Australian tour. Um, and both of them ended up really going more into teaching. Uh, and then dad also went uh, not only into teaching, but he also started broadcasting. So he worked for 
the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Commission, and also Channel 7 uh, down in Australia. And uh, his seatmate, his uh, fellow analyst, was none other than Peter Thompson. So um, I kind of followed, I guess, in Dad's footsteps, both in professional golf uh, and broadcasting. So uh, it was it was a fun childhood. You know, both my brother and I uh, loved to play golf. We got started as as kids. You know, going to the the par three, the North Adelaide par three. There, um, as you said, I was born in Perth. Actually, raised in Adelaide. Um, you know, from about the age of two and a half. So I. I know I was born in Western Australia, but I consider myself more of a South Australian, I should say. Um, but yeah, we had a great childhood. Uh, we loved hanging out with dad at the golf course, um, you know, every chance we could. And, uh, you know, he instructed us, gave us, you know, great fundamentals. You know, I would end up taking that, you know, onto the professional tour, whereas my brother Neil, or oh, he was a very good amateur, represented uh, Australia over in Hong Kong in the uh, Eisenhower Cup, and uh, he ended up deciding not to turn professional, but he got his bachelor's in architecture, and he and dad kind of started in the golf architecture uh, side of things. And so once dad passed away in 1994, Neil uh, took on another partner and has kept it going, and that's his full-time occupation right now. And Jane, speaking of fundamentals, your father wrote a book, How to Win at Golf with Bill Pritchard. Is yes. that sort of your go-to manual whenever you started to struggle with your golf swing a little bit? Pop that book open and get uh, get Dad's help to get yourself back on track? Absolutely. Um, you know, when I first came over here, it was the days before the internet or video. Um, I would give him a call or he would leave voicemails for me and give me a few little tips. But really that book, um, you know, that I was featured in a little bit in a few different situations, he so um, stresses the importance of fundamentals and there's so many great drills um, and things, you know, just to, to get my mind back, you know, to center again, um, because it's easy as a professional golfer to get, you know, uh, get stuck in, on one thing and then you forget the fundamentals. And then by that time, you're way far away from where you should be. So yeah, that was, uh, that was really handy to have. And, in fact, uh, I have a couple of copies and I'm going to lend it to a, a friend of mine up here in Payson who really has just started the game. And uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to lend Robin this book and hopefully it'll help her. Jane, you're a qualified pharmacist, which isn't an easy <laughs> thing to become. What made you put that aside to then go out and play golf professionally? Well, you know what, um, both my parents stressed the importance of a good education to my brother Neil and to me. And I was always interested in uh, the medical field, but I really wasn't cut out to be a doctor. And I thought, you know, pharmacy would be a really good occupation. Um, I love to play golf. You know, at the time I finished high school, I was a very good young amateur. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to get this degree in pharmacy. And whatever happens, if I do decide to turn professional, I always have this in my back pocket. I always know that I can come home and take up my pharmacy once more. And I'm still here, Chris. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but, you know, even, even when I was uh, an amateur, um, you know, I, 
I was still working as a pharmacist. I worked for, as a pharmacist for about three years before I turned professional. And it was great because I could fill in for people in certain shops or whatever and work it around my amateur golf schedule. So it, it was really, really a great profession. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I always thought I'm not going to regret. Well, how shall I put it? I don't want to think back as I get older, wishing that I had given professional golf a try. And so this profession that I had as a pharmacist would always be there. So I gave myself five years when I first turned professional and came over to the States at the beginning of 1981. I knew that I had this in my back pocket and if it didn't work out, so be it. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was hard, hard work, hard study. And I'm sure I have forgotten 95% of everything I learned, but that's okay. I, I still, uh, I still don't, uh, I still love the fact that I have that pharmacy degree on my wall. You won the Australian Ladies Masters in 1992. You did so by three strokes over Jane Geddes, who had won it the mm -hmm. two previous years, plus Brandy Burton and Leanne Mills. Mm -hmm. Had to be a huge thrill for you to win that tournament in front of the home crowd. What do you remember about that first win? You know, I, uh, I remember just being at Royal Pines on the Gold Coast. That was the first year that we, we played there. We played at, uh, at Palm Meadows, which was an adjacent golf course. And we started to call that James Meadows because Jane Geddes won it twice. And we're like, you know, she's got a little bit of a bead on this course. Maybe it's time to change the golf course. But when it moved to Royal Pines, which at the time, I have to say, was probably one of the best manicured resort courses that I had ever played. The greens were Bermuda. The course was pristine. The, the greens were probably the best greens I've ever putted on. And I think I had probably the best putting performance of my life. It's like 40 footers. I just hit them and they'd go in. It was absolutely crazy. Um, but yes, an absolute thrill to have won in my home, home country. I think at that time, you know, there were, it wasn't like a full LPGA event. But the organizer, Bob Tui, made sure that he he got a really good field. You know, he got Laura Davies and he got Lisa Lot Neumann and he got Jane Geddes. And th there was it was really a fantastic field. So I felt, uh, you know, that was a great thrill. Absolutely. And then to win it again in 1996 and then to follow that up in 97 with the Australian Women's Open. Um, it was was a dream. It it really was. And I think as an Aussie to have won not just the Australian Ladies Masters, but the Open, when when you win, it's like Nick Taylor uh winning the Canadian. It's such a thrill, not only for yourself, but for all the gallery and the people that are supporting you, your family, your friends that have really been behind you all the way. Um, to do that in front of those people. Um is a, is a memory that will last forever, Chris. So let's take that a step further, because mm -hmm. having won the Australian Ladies Masters twice, to your point, going on in 97 to win the Open, I mean, at that, at that point, you got to be a huge celebrity in Australia. How much did your life change after winning those three events? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I think it did, because, you know, when I would go back home to Australia and I'd walk in, 
to the bank and asked, you know, you had traveler's checks back then. I wanted to get a traveler's check cashed. And the girl looked at me and she said, are you the Jane Crafter? And I said, I don't know. I guess I am. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you know, you would have newspaper banners, um, you know, up against the newsstands, you know, Crafter wins, you know, Masters or wins the Open. And as a person who wasn't really used to all of those accolades, yeah, it was 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 a bit strange. Um, and I had a lot of interviews to do, uh, a lot of uh, newspaper articles and photo shoots and things like that. Um, in fact, I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking at uh, at one of them that was taken in 1992. And gosh, I look so much younger. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. It really was, um, and I'm ever so grateful uh, for all of the support and you know the the great teaching from Dad and you know the people along the way who've really helped me um, both in Australia and over here. Once you know, I made uh, the U.S. my home. The cherry on top of all of that had to be being inducted into the South Australian mm. Sports Hall of Fame and then the Australian Golf Industry Hall of Fame. What was it like for you being on that stage and then getting up on that podium knowing that you're now a Hall of Famer? Actually, it turned out I I didn't get to go uh, to those. Um, I don't really know why. I look back on that now, Chris, and I regret not going. Uh, my brother accepted for me uh, and his daughter, Lucy. Um, so even though I was really, really touched and thrilled, I, I didn't have a firsthand experience of having that um, being in that room. And it's it's definitely a regret uh, because those accolades uh, and those honours really don't come very often. And I think sometimes in life we, you know, life, you think your life is too busy to do something like that or it's too far to go. Um, I wasn't going to make that mistake when uh, the the golf course, Yarra Yarra Golf Course, uh, asked me uh, to accept an honorary membership last March. And I was going back to Australia and I made a point, uh, you know, from Sydney, I made my way to Melbourne before I went back home to Adelaide. And uh, it was it was really wonderful to reminisce uh, with all the people that were there and who supported me uh, during that particular week. So. I think I kind of learned my lesson, but I wish it hadn't taken missing out on uh, receiving those awards uh, to make me go for sure. So, um, yeah, I think that's what I would say to some of the younger players. If you've been given an award or you're being inducted into any uh, kind of Hall of Fame, whether it's college or state or or whatever, a national, make a point of going. That would be my my piece of advice for sure. Jane, over here on the LPGA Tour, you won the Farmore at Inverary by a stroke over Nancy Lopez. Inverary is a place that's hosted the Jackie Gleason Inverary yeah. Open back in the day on the PGA Tour there in South Florida. What do you recall about holding off Nancy Lopez oh. to win your first LPGA event? Talk about talk about nerve-wracking. It, it's amazing how that memory of that last green just is uh, indelibly etched into my into my mind. Because I I hit it onto the back of the green. Tammy Green was maybe uh, a foot or so outside me, just uh, off the edge. She chipped it in. 
And I, uh, she wasn't necessarily writing contention, but I turned to my caddy, Joe Connolly, and I said, Joe, what are the odds of two of these going in from this the same area? He said, just do it, <laughs> you know, just make it. And I was so focused. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this putt. And it was about 40 feet, and I took out my trusty bullseye, and I knocked it in the hole, and I, I think I levitated at least maybe three inches. I tried to do my best Michael Jordan, but I was like, oh, my God, this thing has gone in. I've won because there was no one else left. Nancy had finished before me. I mean, in any way to win a tournament, that's the way to win a tournament. And when I was in the press room afterwards, uh, one of the uh, journalists asked me, um, were you trying to make that part or were you trying to lag it down there to get into a playoff? And I looked at him and I said, against Nancy Lopez, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Why would I want to do that? <laughs> um, but that was, that was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, as a, young, as a young girl playing golf in Australia, to think that not only could I win an LPGA event, but I could beat the great Nancy Lopez, even though back she was about my age. But she had an incredible career before I managed to beat her that particular week. Um, and one of the nicest people you could ever, ever hope to know. Um, she was so gracious. Um, what a thrill. I mean, that will, the Aussie Open, that, that's a special place in my heart. But as far as, you know, pride of performance and beating a great field, I mean, you, you can't go past that, that particular one. So yeah, I'm very, uh, very thankful for that, and uh, it brings a smile to my face every time I think of that golf journalist asking me that question. I said, are you crazy? Against Nancy <laughs> Lopez? <laughs> that was funny. Jane, Tom Patry is a regular guest on this show. Yes, he is, I love Tom. And he, uh, earlier tonight, talked about how when he was coaching some ladies out on the LPGA Tour and you were playing, he would go by some of the greens just to watch you putt. He said, uh, you have such a beautiful putting stroke. And you've talked about holding 40-footers and, and, and really putting the eyes out of the golf ball. But talk about your putting stroke and, and how big and a part of your game was mm -hmm. knowing and being confident that, that if you were going to strike a putt, there's a really good chance it was going in. Well, it's interesting because, you know, growing up, you know, my dad really stressed the importance of the short game, chipping and putting. He said, you've got to spend you know, at least half your time, maybe three quarters of the time around the greens. Um, and I think the biggest thing that um, really made me work a lot harder on that was losing to uh, Lindy Goggin in the 77 Australian Amateur Championship. That's uh, Matt Goggin's mom. And Lindy was one of the best Australian amateurs. And she used to use this uh, little mallet. It was like a Billy Casper mallet. And this woman, I mean, talk about putt. I thought I was a pretty good putter back then, but she ran rings around me and used it as such an incredible weapon, especially match play. You know, she can you can really uh, take the wind out of people's sails if you if you make putts uh, in match play. So losing to her really reinforced the fact that okay, Dad, you're right. I must work a lot harder. So you know that's the area really that I put most of my focus on 
Um, I was never a long hitter. Uh, I was pretty straight. Um, but my short game was really the strength. And any time, uh, you know, that it was really on would be a great week for me. Uh, I think back to playing with, uh, with Steve Jones in the, uh, in the JC Penny there at the Bardmore in South Florida. And I was going through a bunch of, uh, scrapbooks and memorabilia and stuff, uh, a few weeks ago. And I came across some articles, uh, that were written about that final round. And I did not remember the fact that I made all these putts and chipped in and things. I mean, we both played really well. And I think at one point we were paired with Mark McCumber and Debbie Massey. And after I made a putt on, I don't know, remember which hole, Mark came running over and tried to steal my putter. He's like, <laughs> I, have, I have got to do something about this. He's such a great guy. I love Mark. Uh, I've worked with him in broadcasting uh, more than one occasion, and we, we laugh about that week. But um, I started out with using uh, a bullseye. And then I went to an, an Odyssey mallet. Uh, and that's when I really started, you know, a, a really good run. Uh, 1992, you know, through 97, uh, you know, I was putting really, really well. And whenever I had the perfect greens, like at Royal Pines, I absolutely loved those greens. It was, uh, it was my favorite, favorite course. Sadly, they redid the course and, it's nothing like it used to be, but still, um, I, I do think that uh, it's great advice for anybody listening at home. Spend at least half to three quarters of your time and energy practicing on your short game because it will save you strokes and it will win you championships, especially in match play. It'll, uh, it'll take the wind out of your opponent's sails. And as my dad always said, Always expect your opponent to make the shot wherever it's from, and then you're never disappointed. So, um, yeah, it, it can definitely be a weapon, Chris, for sure. Jane, the Legends of the LPGA is a partner with me here on the show. I've had Jane mm -hmm. Geddes and Jane Blaylock on the show several times, and it's a tour. Or Jane's provides... than you know what to do with, right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that tour gives so much access to the players, way better. Mm -hmm than any of the other tours that are out there. But talk about the back in the day when you were working as a, a part of the board, president of the board, and getting that tour off the ground. Well, back, uh, I was one of the 25 uh, founding uh, members. We put a little bit of money into it um, back in uh, 2000. And we, we, got it, we got it going. And then sadly, you know, around 2008, of course, with the global financial crisis things kind of fell apart but we had some great tournaments in uh in green bay in uh des moines uh all over the country uh just just love to have us uh, legends of the lpga come and play it was it's hard work um being on the board being president vice president to rosie who was president rosie jones uh and then being president um i guess what i would say chris is that it was a little frustrating um, that the LPGA really didn't kind of invest more in their former players like the PGA Tour has done. I don't want it to sound like sour grapes, um, but to, to me it was disappointing because they really missed the boat on all of the great players being 
front and centre, um, who had left the LPGA. Players like Nancy Lopez, Beth Daniel, Patty Sheehan, Pat Bradley. You know, we're we're all too old now, and it's starting to get uh, a little bit more traction and a little bit more support from the LPGA, which is great. Um, but it's 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 tough. It really is. There's only uh, you know, a certain number of dollars that are available, um, you know, to sponsor. And you've got the Champions Tour, you've got the Epson Tour from the LPGA, um, as well as the other tours all around the world. So it's it's definitely uh, it's definitely a hard it's a hard task to really uh, you know get it up and up and going off the ground. Um, and I do I do think that. We need to lower the age. I think we need to lower the age to 40. It was 45. Uh, well, it still is 45. But sadly, the U.S. Women's Senior Open is still 50. So there's a bunch of players that are sort of, you know, languishing in the, you know, in the Neverland, Never, Netherlands uh, before they're able to play in a senior LPGA or a U.S. Senior Women's Open. So um, I know I'm kind of rambling a little bit. Um, and I'm probably not going to be playing anymore. I've had, you know, a series of, uh, you know, uh, knee replacements and I'm going to get a hip replacement next, uh, you know, at the end of this month. So I think my days of competing are over, but I would love to see the LPGA get a little bit more behind the legends and, uh, and see what they can do. And there's got to be some, some monetary support given because it is a, it's a, it's a tough road to hope. So let's take that a step further, Jane, because mm -hmm. one of the things that has baffled me about the legends of the LPGA is the mm -hmm. fact that I felt like it was a missed opportunity for so mm. many years because the players that you just mentioned, I mean, those are the golden age of the LPGA tour. I mean, I go, no go back to, to Jane Blaylock's years in the seventies and the things that she did and, and Sandra Palmer and, and all the, all the wonderful players that were out there. Beth Daniel was one of my favorites as I was mm. growing up on the LPGA tour. And I felt like there was such a gap between when those ladies were coming to the end of their careers and what was available on the legends tour. And yeah. I, I felt like the PGA tour embraced the senior tour back in the day, back in the eighties and that sort of thing. And those guys yeah. graduated and went on and they were so much fun to watch. I felt like the LPGA sort of ignored you guys. And I could never understand why that was. Well, you would not get an argument uh, from this uh, this person here. Um, I I think in the end it's all about money. Um, I just don't think that the LPGA had the coffers to really support uh, the tour. And I wonder too if you know someone someone like Nancy, who should have been front and center. You know she had her share of issues and knee injuries as well. We needed someone like her to really be, you know, the poster child, right? Um, but even before Nancy, I mean, you had some fantastic players who who really should have been showcased better. So I guess we have to, I guess we have to blame the LPGA for not having the vision and not wanting to support their alumni because they're, the, the men's tour, the, the PGA tour, uh, had the senior tour. I mean, you know, Arnie and Jack and Gary and Peter Thompson and, you know, all these incredible, I mean, Halo and all these incredibly good players. It was a seamless transition, right? Um, 
but it hasn't been a seamless transition. And there are many, many LPGA players who are, you know, pro- not languishing, um, but there's not the opportunity to continue their career and their opportunities for earning like the PGA Tour. So um, I wouldn't say I'm bitter about it. I'm disappointed more. I And I don't really know if there's one person to blame or if it's just a lack of a lack of a wider vision. Um, you know, the LPGA does like to say that it's, you know, cradle to the grave. Well, I don't really know about that because you've got the USGA LPGA Girls Golf. You've got uh, the LPGA amateurs, you've got the professionals, you've got the Epson tour, you've got the LPGA tour, and then well, we we're doing the best we can. And uh, you know, Linda Chan and Kathy Harbin are really working hard along with the board. You know, um, Kathy Johnston Forbes and a whole bunch of great players who are working their butt off to try and get some tournaments off the ground. Um, but that shouldn't have to be. And so I agree with you 100%. Um, it, it could have been different, and I wish it had been different because the public has missed out on the opportunity to see some of these players playing a little bit more in the twilight um, of their golf careers. And, you know, there's really not that opportunity that much anymore. So uh, I love the fact that the USGA finally Put on a U.S. Women's Senior Open, which was great. They agreed to that in uh, 2015, but it wasn't till 2018 that they actually had one. Um, and that was a great week in a Chicago Golf Club. What a joy to play that course! Wow, um, that was uh, that was fantastic. And then to go back to my old stomping ground in 2019 at Pine Needles, um, and, and while I'm talking about Pine Needles, Chris, I have to thank the Bell family, Peg Kirk Bell and her husband and the kids. Um, they took this poor little wayward waif from Australia in. Um, you know, I got to represent Pine Needles on the LPGA. I had somewhere to play and practice um, that you couldn't have asked for a better opportunity. And I'm completely indebted Um to uh, to the Bell family for everything that they have afforded me uh, as a as a young professional. So let's take that a step further, because <laughs> not only did you go back there to Pine Needles and play in the 2019 U.S. Senior Women's Open, you finished fourth. Oh, no. I still talk about what that I, was like. I can't believe that. Um, you know, I was having some knee issues and, you know, they were both wrapped up and I'd had stem cell and but I was going to play. Come hell or high water, I was going to be there uh, in 2019. And it was just so great. I stayed with one of my uh, great friends, Sally Austin, who teaches there uh, at Pine Needles. And in fact, Sally and Peggy Kirkbell's daughter, Bonnie, were born in the Moore County Hospital within a week of each other. So that that afforded me that connection because I became friends with Sally on the uh, mini tour when I first came over. And so she introduced me to the Bell family. And that's how. You know, I got to hang out, um, you know, at Pine Needles. But what a thrill to to come back and play in a in a championship. The greens had been redone. They were a lot more difficult. Bermuda, very quick, a lot of slope. Um, but I, I was working hard on my game uh, before that, and I was hitting the ball well, and I felt like my short game uh, was in good stead and didn't start out great. Uh, shot a few over the first day, but came back and, 
you know, I eventually worked my way up in, into contention. Um, and, you know, honestly, the last day I missed a few putts where, you know, I really could have, you know, been vying for the title, but I ended up in fourth. I made up a, a good putt on the last hole to finish fourth. And I, I, that was such a thrill to play there uh, in front of, you know, obviously Peggy had passed away, but in front of Bonnie and Pat McGowan and, and uh, Peggy Ann um, Miller, uh, her husband is the general manager, Kelly. But to be there and succeed, I mean, it was a victory for me, even though I didn't win. Alfie won, and that was great. She played fantastic. Um, but to me, finishing fourth there, I, that was like a drop the mic situation. If I didn't play any more women's senior opens, I was fine with that result. <laughs> <laughs> Dane, just a couple more before I let you go. And yeah. if, if we're not going to get to see you playing out on the Legends Tour this year, What's on your calendar for 2024? When can we see you or hear you? Well, um, right now, I'm pretty much winding down the uh, the commentary. You know, I've had a great commentary career. I I was very grateful to uh, to Tommy Roy at NBC and Larry Cirillo at ESPN, you know, back in the late 90s for giving me a chance and uh, being patient uh, with me and developing, uh, you know, my uh, broadcasting ability. Um, but my, I think the only one I'm doing so far that I know of is the uh, PGA Championship for ESPN+. Plus. Uh, I've done uh, featured holes the last uh, couple of years and have enjoyed that. So I'll be the analyst on that uh, digital channel uh, there at Valhalla in Louisville. So that'll be fun. I might have to, you know, make a little side trip maybe to a couple of the bourbon distilleries just to, you know, check it out. <laughs> um, I'm not a real bourbon aficionado. I do like a little single malt scotch. I think I probably prefer that. But, hey, I'm not averse to uh, to checking things out. But, um, yeah, as I said, I've got hip replacement surgery for coming up at the end of the month and hopefully uh, make a good recovery and maybe get back onto the golf course would be fun just to, to play socially and uh, hack it around with my friends. But uh, I don't think, I don't think the, uh, uh, it's certainly not the big events. Now I might play maybe a couple little pro-ams on the, on the legends of the LPGA tour if the opportunity comes. But um, I think pretty much my uh, major championship competitive days are done. I just had my, 68th birthday if dr bob can say he's 70 i can i can say i i just turned 68 and i look back and think i don't feel it except my joints maybe feel it um but i look back and i'm very very thankful and blessed that i've had such a fun career and i've had so many people uh support me along the way and i've made so many great friends um you know and that's that's what the game of golf does. I mean, you meet great people and you, you have fun along the way and, and you make friends in, the, in all parts of the world. And I've been very, very lucky to have traveled uh, as much as I have and, and played with so many great people. Jane, is it possible for our listeners to stay up to date with you? Are you out there on social media or online? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, Jane Crafter, and then uh, – on Instagram, uh, JC Orchids, and then on uh, uh, X or Twitter, it's uh, Crafty Mate at Crafty Mate. So uh, yeah, always uh, pop in and say hello for anyone who wants to uh, 
you know, to interact, I'd be happy to do that. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, Jane, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of the show, being generous with your time as well. You're such a treat. I hope we get the privilege of doing this again sometime. Well, anytime, Chris, and uh, thanks for all you do for uh, for golf in general, but for women's golf and for the legends of the LPGA as well. Uh, you know, we, we need more advocates and, uh, you know, the more our, our tour gets out there and women's golf uh, will benefit for sure. So we appreciate you as well. Take care, Jane. Again, Happy New Year. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you sometime soon. Thanks, Chris. Take care and cheers, everyone. Thank you, Jane. Folks, that is the great Jane Crafter. Boy, they just don't come better than Jane. What a wonderful amateur career she had back in Australia. Translated that into a win on the LPGA Tour and being a factor out there for years. Transitioned over to being a fantastic broadcaster. Again, like she said, kind of followed in her dad's footsteps in in a couple of different ways. But she is just such a treat to get to spend time with. Is it any wonder? that Tom Patrick at the top of this show talked about what a wonderful person she is and then listening to all the great victories that she had and what a wonderful putter she was. That's one of the things next time we got to get a putting lesson. And as you guys have heard me say over the years, for folks that are out there putting with a bullseye putter back in the day that had a sweet spot the size of a dime, I don't know how people did it, but Jane certainly was great at it. So kudos to her for everything that she has done over the course of of her career and being such a wonderful guest tonight. I, I, I promise you got to get her back on the show again soon and, and talk more about the things that she did and get a couple of pl- uh, putting lessons from her as well. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this first episode of 2024. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Kermit Zarley, Dr. Bob Winters and Jane Crafter for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are Mike McGee, son of former PGA Tour pro Jerry McGee and the husband of Annika Sorenstam, will be here. I'm very excited to have Mike as part of the show. Top 100 instructor Jeff Smith will make his next On the Tee debut as well. Our good friend and the best photographer on the planet, Evan Schiller, will be back. And then we'll round things out with the best way possible. And that is with one of my all-time favorite people on the planet, let alone guests. And that is Matthew Lawrence. So it's going to be a lot of fun next week, folks. I hope you'll tune in and be a part of the show with us. You can find the show available as a podcast, just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on TribLive.com and the Pittsburgh Tribune Review site. Just go to TribLive.com, click on Sports and Then Podcast, and the show is going to be available front and center for you right there. You can also find the show on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audio Boom and player.fm. And as always, my thanks to the folks over at Good Pods for making this show one of their recommended podcasts, a staff pick, and we finished number one in golf podcast over there for last year. So my thanks to all of them for their wonderful support. Please download their free app and stream your favorite podcast from your favorite device over on Good Pods. But most of all, my sincere thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.